This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is March the 10th. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast, community-supported sheltering. It's been a buzzword or buzz term, I guess, for a while now, but the concept is a basic one, no longer considering the public as a roadblock to life-saving, instead seeing that animal-loving public in the community as a powerful ally. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you've probably heard us talk about partnerships before. The power of those relationships, the shelter, field services, local governments, the rescue community, and the public, and even stakeholders outside of our field, such as organizations that support people, many of them pet owners, who, for example, are experiencing homelessness. But getting all of those stakeholders working together can be a bit like herding cats, right? But when you see it in action in a community, it is a beautiful thing, and it is doable where you live. And if you're looking for guidance on how to get that done, well, that's the focus of today's episode, getting those stakeholders engaged. It's a recent Best Friends Network town hall. Before I hit play on that, I just want to do a quick promo for the next Best Friends Network town hall. This is going to be on March 24th, so coming up in a couple weeks, and it's all about communication and transparency between shelters and communities. So very relevant as a follow-up to today's podcast. The registration for that town hall is open. You'll find a link in the show notes area of your podcast player. And as always, resources on the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click the link for this episode, which is number 103. All right, let me introduce myself. I'm Brent Tolner. I'm the Senior Director of National Programs for Best Friends Animal Society. Tonight's topic is community-supported sheltering, aligning all stakeholders in the in the welfare of animals in your community. I'm going to intro our panelists. First up is Sue Cosby. Sue, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, I'm Sue Cosby, and I'm Best Friends Senior Director of Life-Saving Centers. So I help provide leadership for Best Friends animal handling facilities across the country. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Chicoco. I'm the director of National Shelter Support for Best Friends Animal Society. Um, my team and I go all over the country working with agencies to help them achieve their life-saving goals. Hey, everyone. Laura Donahue, and I'm the director of legislation and advocacy at Best Friends. I have the distinct honor of working with our legislative attorneys, as well as our grassroots advocates to help change policies for the better. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for coming in and joining me to cover this important topic. So to get us started, you know, I the last couple of years have been super weird. You know, we uh, we've got the pandemic, we've got shelters that have been really struggling with staff shortages, uh, either from the Great Resignation or you know people who are just out temporarily with COVID, and sometimes large groups of people uh, within their shelters that are out. Uh, from COVID. And it's really forced us in many ways to engage the community very differently um, than what we have previously. And so it's really given us rise to what we call community supported sheltering. Now, I know not everybody calls it that, um, but it's essentially what it is because there's no one program that is community supported sheltering, uh, but it's kind of that collection of programs um, that engage the community in a meaningful way. And so with that, Sue, um, help explain a little bit more about what community sheltering is, um, what it means to us. Is this something new? 
Yeah, um, it's a great question. And even in trying to describe it, we use the word programs. Um, and it's really so much more than a program. Um, first and foremost, it begins with uh, animal shelters and those of us who are invested in animal welfare, recognizing that community members are part of the solution. They are the solution as opposed to being the problem. And so for best friends, community supported sheltering means how we seek to engage the whole community rather than a select segment, rather than people who may already be passionate about animal welfare, um, but really bringing everyone to the table to be a part of solution. Um, and it sounds kind of simple because, hey, we all are inviting the community to be a part of our work, um, but it's actually quite revolutionary in the field of animal welfare. Uh, since the very earliest days of the, the work that we do in this field, the public was viewed as the problem. And for decades, efforts to solve issues in animal welfare were really founded in the belief that the public was negligent um, or ignorant. And the solution centered around legislating behavior, instituting punishment, um, you know, combined with having to educate an uncaring or ignorant public. Um, those negative attitudes towards the public led animal sheltering to adopt strict rules, policies, uh, catch and kill tactics for animal control, um, and other policies that really reinforced an us versus them attitude. Um, and it, they did very little to address the root causes that put pets and people at risk or to empower or inspire the general public to be a part of the solution. And so if we think about back to the 19, now 1980, um, estimated 13 to 17 million pets were being killed in U.S. shelters, really with a lot of that negative attitude um, holding sway. Um, but over the past 30 years in particular, animal sheltering has really evolved away from this negative attitude. Um, and we think about the work in the late 80s at the San Francisco SPCA, who really kind of opened the doors to really welcoming the public into saving lives, inviting advocacy. And that brings us to today where by 2020, for best friend stats, more than 80% of pets and dogs and cats entering shelters are saved. And nearly one half of US shelters are no kill or have achieved the 90% benchmark that we consider a threshold towards getting to no kill. And the really common element of that success is how much we have as a, as a as an entire animal welfare field, invited the public into our work. And I love one, one of the things you've said before on this is just that like this, that sense of ownership and that shared responsibility that the public has uh, with all the work that we have, that it, I think really is a differentiating factor. And there, there has been so much progress over the last 30 years. So it's barely recognizable, even from when I entered the field, you know, 18 years ago. So with that, there are, probably four key groups that are key stakeholders in all of this. And I want to ask each of you all about some of those stakeholders. I think, first of all, Sue, we'll stick with you and talk about the shelters. And there's a critical role that they obviously play in community-supported sheltering. And just want you to talk a little bit about that role. Yeah, sure. I think, again, going back to that thought about programs, is that very often we've thought that shelters um, are uh, sort of in order to make a public, bring in the public, we can do a couple things. We can um, maybe let people volunteer a little bit more and then still considering a segment of that public, their, how we interact with them is by providing services to them. So sometimes you may hear 
different terms around community sheltering that are really much more about providing services. Um, for best friends, is services are a component of that, but it is really how we can bring more people to the table and really reflect in animal sheltering. What are the roadblocks that we're putting in the way of allowing the public to come in? Um, so really taking a look at our adoption programs and Best Friends has a lot of materials around barrier-free adoptions. How can we really look and relook at our adoptions? Look at our policies and procedures are we actually limiting the public in any way? Are there things that they could be involved in in how we do our work, putting our trust in them to actually participate? So I had a great call this morning where I was talking with one of our life-saving centers who's working with a large municipal shelter. And that shelter has, once they put an animal on their adoption floor, they actually have an internal policy that doesn't allow any rescue to take those animals um, because they are destined for their adoption program. Well, during this crisis that we're all facing right now, where Best Friends estimates that there's around 100,000 animals more this year who are waiting in shelters, waiting to go into homes are, are than last year. So the number of animals waiting for outcomes has increased. And this shelter in particular is feeling it. And they're suffering because they don't have the staff in place through the resignation, through COVID, to actually achieve all of the adoptions that they did before. And the call that our team had with them this morning is, hey, like, how about we just release some of these animals to rescues? I know you wanted them for your adoption program, and I know that's the way you've operated before, and it was successful for you before, but how can we start to think differently? Now, rescues are still part of animal welfare, but they're also part of the community. They're very often volunteer-based, and they're bringing people to the table. So looking at every single program in that way, how can we bring people in a little bit more? How can we trust the public? Can we adopt out this animal who still needs to recover medically, as opposed to maybe what we did in the past was complete all of that medical work ourselves before we even began to promote that animal for adoption? And I love the thought of it. Like, I mean, so many of us have gotten used to animal welfare and it's like, this was successful for me in the past. And like, but that just because it was successful three years ago doesn't mean like in our current environment that that's necessarily going to be successful. And I think it really does benefit all of us to think about, you know, what does necessarily need to change or what do we need to try differently uh, given the current circumstances. Moving on to the world of field services, Scott, the community is obviously an important part of what you all do. And in fact, when it comes to community engagement, field services officers are, you know, they're actually out in the community and engaging yeah. with community on a daily basis. Tell us about their the role that field services plays in community supported sheltering. Yeah, like you said, Brent, it, 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 they're the face of the community programming for the shelter. They're the face of the shelter of the community. You know, most of the average citizens don't have any interaction with the shelters. Um, they may not even know their policies or procedures or what's going, you know, what's going on at the shelter changes, whatever. But when you when you ha have the opportunity to interact with a, an animal control officer, field service officer, there's so many different names for them. Um, as long as we don't call them dog catcher, hate that word. Uh, that's got to be stricken from our vocabulary, one thousand percent. But you know, when you have an interaction, um, historically, you know, it used to only be negative. Right. The only time someone interacted with the, an animal service officer was when something bad happened or when something was negative. And in today's environment, that's changed. And, and that's, you know, because of these 
the, the you know, we talk, we, we call them programs and I love to see how you extended it on, you know, beyond just a, a program, but to us, you know, a community, community service or, or based program is, is more of a mindset. It's a philosophy. You know, we want officers when they go out into the streets to, to have that mindset of today, I'm going to solve a problem today. I'm going to help somebody and, and an animal. You know, it used to be I'm going to save an animal, I'm going to rescue an animal from the streets. Now it's it's more along the lines of I want to solve a problem, right? And and we see that in in ways of like you know historically um, animals would just get found running running at large in the streets. They'd get put in a truck, brought to the shelter, and then the shelter would be responsible for trying to identify who the owner was, call them, have them come down, pay you know sometimes exorbitant fees hours were, you know, inconvenient or what have you. Um, in today's world, a field return to honor is more of a thing for officers. And, and, and they're actually going to great lengths. And, you know, we could talk about microchipping and, you know, scanning for microchips and waving ID tags. And, and that's all fantastic. It's all, you know, keys, all, ticket home, so to speak. But there's so much more that officers are doing today uh, across the country, you know, like we have places like Dallas, Texas, who are using, um, you know, lost and found flyers that they printed up in the truck and they're posting. We have places that have built up partnerships with local sign companies and they have yard signs saying, hey, you know, uh, lost dog found, you know, found dog. And they put it right where they found the dog. It describes the dog. They're using social media. It's, it's such a key thing now where officers are taking pictures of the animals while they're still in the field and posting it to Facebook next door and, and all these lost and found pages with the goal of being to get that animal home prior to impounding it into the shelter. I know, I know officers that actually will put a leash on the dog and walk the dog around the neighborhood and ask people, Hey, do you know who owns this dog? And, you know, uh, I was in Florida recently and, you know, before they before an officer impounds a dog, they have to talk to at least four residents make contact with at least four residents to find out if anyone knows who the dog is, you know, who, where the dog lives to get that dog. And it's just, you know, things like that. We're seeing the rates of return to owner go through the roof. We're seeing shelter intake plummet. And, and those are just some of the things that are happening. And again, with the goal being problem solving and, and being that officer out in the streets, helping people, helping animals get home, helping people, you know, resolve conflicts with community cats and wildlife and, and so forth, rather than just doing what we've always done. And I think it's because we know what we've always done doesn't work. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you talk about the like, old dog catcher type of uh, thing. It's like, I feel like for the longest time, the field service officers were kind of right out of a Disney movie or like, like our image of them was like they were chasing the, the, the good guy, um, who was always the pet, like down the street and stuff. And we were always rooting against the field service officers. And like, you compare that to the idea or the image of a, an officer walking up and down the street, engaging the community. And, you know, do you know where this pet lives? Have you seen this pet before? Do you, do you know where it can go? Cause I don't want to take it to the shelter. It's like right. a completely different philosophical shift than what we've seen before. And I don't like when you called it a philosophical shift on it. It it feels to me as kind of more on the sheltering side of of things that this, that mentality and that philosophy has changed a lot over the course of probably really the last three or four years almost. Are you seeing a lot more organizations adopt that sort of philosophy? 
We are. We are actually seeing more and more adopting it. And, you know, and, and as much as I hate to say it, there was that silver lining to COVID. You know, there were, there were agencies who were afraid to implement a lot of these programs that we're talking about, but COVID forced them to do it. And then, um, you know, when they once they followed the National Animal Control Association's guidelines for, you know, not taking in healthy cats and, you know, and all of these other programs that were, were, were procedures that were promoted during COVID, um, as some, you know, recommended, some forced on them because of staffing shortages or the shelter was closed or what have you, um, you know, then when the dust settled, so to speak, and I'm not going to say when COVID left because we're still dealing with it today, obviously, but um, when the dust settled, so to speak, a lot of agencies said, wow, it actually did work. Let's continue this because we're seeing such a great response from not only from the community, but from the, you know, from our numbers. And, and, you know, one of my favorite is I, I, every now and again, I'll be, in an, I'll be in a meeting with a service director and they'll, they'll say something to the effect of, no, boy, I was really surprised that the community didn't, you know, come running, you know, with pitchforks and, and torches at the shelter when we, when we told them we weren't we were going to be doing this. Um, they really embraced it and they worked with us. And it was, it's a good sign for those agencies and others that the community does actually want to be part of the solution. You know, as Sue alluded to earlier, and believe me, I was one of those guys. I've been in this business for over 30 years, and I was an officer in the days when people were bad. You, if you, you know, if you didn't have the money to take care of an animal, you shouldn't have a money. You know, you shouldn't have a pet. Um, you know, we were we were doing adoptions in ways that we were looking for ways to say no. You know, um, because you weren't good enough, and you were part of the problem. You were the problem. You know. Uh, and, and I'm so glad to see that those days are, for, for, for the most part, gone. And people are starting to realize that the community is not the problem. You know, they can be part of the solution. And it's, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, this one agency we're working with, we, there, there are a few, but there were one agencies we were working with, one agency we were working with in Florida. And we told them about the yard sign that Maricopa County, and to the best of my knowledge, Maricopa County was one of the first agencies that implemented the yard sign uh, concept with found dogs. And they and, and we were talking to this agency in Florida and they were saying, wow, there's a sign company like right across the street. Um, and they just went over it and started having a conversation with the manager. And they got like all these signs donated. Right. So it, it, it's not only including people in the community as part of the solution, but it's businesses. It's building partnerships. Now, I come from a world of, of, of law enforcement, traditional law enforcement philosophies of community policing. And, 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 you know, when I was, when I was doing that, it was all about building partnerships within the community, both the, you know, the, the, the residents, as well as the, the companies, you know, the, the businesses and those businesses want to help. And the one thing that's stopping them from doing it is not being asked. And what we're finding is more and more when people are asking for that, you know, support and for that partnership, um, they're being welcomed with open arms. That's awesome. If you think about like just the public in general, that 70% of the U.S. population owns pets. And so that means at least 70% of the U.S. population is at least predisposed to care and love pets and, and probably many more care and love pets that don't even have them for various reasons. And so, you know, I think if we go in with that mindset that the vast majority of people have pets and care about pets and love them, uh, I think it definitely reshapes the mindset of how we approach those, those members of the public. Exactly, exactly. 
Well, thank you, Scott. Um, I want to talk about the third pillar now with Laura. You know, obviously, we've talked about sheltering. We've talked about um, the role that field services plays. Uh, those make obvious sense because those are on the front lines of animal welfare. But there's a critical kind of third group, and that's the role of government. Tell me a little bit, you know, from your perspective in your government affairs role, like what role does government play in this? Yeah, I mean, it's a hugely critical role. I don't have to tell anyone um, who's on this call that works for a municipal or or taxpayer funded um, facility that you are government, right? Like you are that you are part of the government, but um, you are bound by the laws that the civic leaders have passed. And um, that that creates a box that you have to operate in. But even if you're a private shelter or us as citizens, we're all constrained by the laws that exist in our community. And so, you know, government is critical because it should be flexible. It should be responsive to the emerging, evolving needs of a community. Um, It should provide for basic resources, right? Government holds the purse strings. So it needs to be responsive and provide those resources. But at the same time, it shouldn't get in the way of, as Scott said, people want to help. So when government is so restrictive that it doesn't allow for innovation, it doesn't allow for people to help, it takes a toll on life saving. And, you know, the good news is actually, um, to your point, the majority of families um, and individuals in a community actually have a pet now. So if a government is to be responsive to the people, it should be responsive to pet owners. That's not how, you know, as, as you and Scott have referenced, the way government um, designed animal services 50 years ago. Um, and we do still have some areas of the country that are um, kind of stuck in that old, you know, kind of rabies control way. But that that's that's sort of long gone for a lot of, a lot of the country, which is really exciting. And people are realizing that actually, um, if we... You know, what's good for our citizens, what's good for efficient government, um, nimble government, what's good for the overall community happens to also be the um, best practices that enable the most life-saving amongst animals. Um, it also happens to be the most efficient way of doing things. Um, often it's the, the less complicated um, government policies and not the most complicated intrusive so government has a really, really critical role. So I'm going to jump over to Scott real quick, because one of those government things that I feel like governments get in the way of this a lot is around the issue of community cats. Um, we know from our data set that for every one dog that is unnecessarily killed in the shelter, uh, there are two cats that fall under that category. And so that we, if in order for us to achieve no kill by 2025, that we need really to focus on cat programming and often government work is government laws and regulations get in the way of that. Uh, Scott, I know this is a world you live in a lot. Like talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. And and to say I live in this world a lot is an understatement, Brent. I've already had this same conversation twice today and, and a couple of times already this week about, you know, specific ordinances and, and, and policies that are in place um, that do, you know, what, let me start by saying this. I'm amazed that the controversy still exists because we have proven, not just us, every, it has been proven that removing a cat from an environment does not solve the problem, that another one will show up and 
any any field service officer who has ever been to a house to pick up a trapped cat will say this. I've been to this house more than once. Right. So we know it doesn't solve the problem. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And we all know what the definition of that is. You know what that's the definition of. Right. It's insane. And it, we know that removing them doesn't work. All right. So I'm just going to start with that. So a lot of a lot of agencies or a lot of government officials, A, don't look at animal control or animal services as the experts. Right. And, 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 and you know, look at them for the how to handle a situation. They tell them how to handle a situation. You never see a city council member or a mayor's office telling a police officer how to conduct an investigation, how to a firefighter, how to put out a fire an EMS worker, how to treat a patient, but dang, man, they will tell an animal controls officer how to pick, how to deal with a cat issue. Right. And it's not right. And, 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 and even in the ordinances they pass, they try and they try and come up with all these different ways of preventing it, preventing people from caring for these animals. Right. Like, and, and, and even those don't, don't make sense half the time. And, and the officers don't understand what, because the, the, the ordinance is written so poorly or just like willy nilly, the officers get stuck having to enforce it. And, and I'll give you a perfect example. I know plenty of places that have an ordinance that say if you if you feed an animal an outdoor animal for more than three days, you are considered the owner of that animal. Okay. And and when I go to agencies and I talk to them about that, you know, and they'll say, well, you can't feed an animal for more than three days. And I said, okay, well, I look at the law with them and I say, well, is it three consecutive days? Or is it three days in the animal's life? Is it th- how do you enforce that? And, and they'll, it'll trip them up a little bit. And then I'll say, okay, so if my, if I feed on Monday and Tuesday, my girlfriend feeds Wednesday and Thursday, I freed Friday, Friday and Saturday. Are you out of luck with being able to do anything about that? And, and, they, and, and there's no answer for it, right? There's no answer for it. And, and, you know, so we try and, and then the, the other thing too, is it says whoever feeds an animal. So then I'm like, then I also ask the officer, are you, are you coming after me for feeding the birds and the squirrels as well? Because it's an animal by definition. So it's it's like all these laws that are passed in their own. There will always be people who look at a cat outdoors, feel bad for them, and feed them. Even if that means getting a citation, even if that means getting yelled at by animal control. Um, but in today's world, where you know if you have a, a, a conflict with that cat, because these cats do cause conflicts with people, they dig in gardens, they do get up on top cars. Um, and, and some people don't want that to happen. Right. So when they don't, they, you know, they don't want that to happen. They get upset. They call the animal control, animal control comes out and they think the only alternative, the answer at that moment in time is to remove the cat. And that's, you know, one of the things that we do, and I know a lot of agencies do this and I'm not claiming, you know, like we are the you know gurus of all this, but we teach conflict resolution, mitigation tech. We teach the, the officers how to teach the property owner to keep the cats off the yard. It's easy. So once you teach the cat not to come in the yard, the conflict's gone. Problem solved. Right. Then you got to deal with all the sterilization and, and, and all that. But, you know, the governments feel as though they have to get involved in this. They have to say what, you know, we know what's best and we're going to say you, you can't do it or, or you, you know, if you feed, you're going to be the owner. We're dealing with a place now that if you want to feed a cat, you have to register with the city. People aren't going to do that. When, and his, history shows. I mean, a lot of people have come into this industry for the past couple of years and don't realize the history behind this issue. You know, we've been trying to we've been trying to deal with this problem 
for decades and decades and decades by removing and restricting. And it doesn't work. Never has it. Never will. And, and that's where governments need to look at the look at the, the, the real reality and say, this is what's really happening in my community. And we're, we're going to we're going to work with it rather than try and fight against it. And I, and I think that thing, like when we talk about pet inclusive housing, we're talking about including all pets in that, including uh, cats that may not have a clear and defined owner per se in the traditional sense of it. Yeah. Laura, I, I know your team has been working a lot with uh, governments, with municipal lawyers uh, and those types of groups to help create kind of a framework for policies. Tell us a little bit about some of that work that you all have been doing. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about a compendium that we put together jointly offered with the International Municipal Lawyers Association, the IMLA. As many of you know, especially those of you that work in a city shelter, your city attorney is the trusted change agent for your city. So, so often, no matter what, you know, what needs to happen, the city manager, the mayor, city council, They've got a big policy they want to, you know, push through. They check with the city manager to say, hey, is this legal? Are there any liability concerns? Do we need to worry about getting sued? Does this make the city safer? I mean, it, you know, the, the city attorney is enormously powerful as it relates to community-supported sheltering. And so we were so excited to jointly offer this compendium with them. I know the links provided in the resources. We also have lots and lots of these physical books printed out, really fancy, um, shiny, glossy paper. If you want one of those, we're happy to mail it to you. But um, it's 10 chapters, and it's all about um, various community-supported sheltering policies like pet-inclusive housing that can, frankly, just help keep pets and families together and um, move resources through the city more efficiently, creating policies that um, really integrate human and animal services, um, because we know oftentimes if there's an animal issue in need, you can connect it to a very real human problem. And if we solve the human problem, the animals, <laughs> the animals get cared for. So if we keep people housed, then animals get to stay too. So everyone benefits, you know, from integrating human and animal services, um, you know, moving resources more efficiently. And so this compendium we have, it's called People, Pets, and Policies. Um, it, it's kind of a guidebook of sample policies that you and your city can implement to save lives. I, I think it's awesome. And I, on a very personal note, I was at a hearing today in Jefferson City, which is the capital of the state that I live in. And this policy guide came up no fewer than four times during the course of an hour and a half hearing uh, because we were looking for definitions to rules and language and stuff uh, as we were talking through things. And it was a fabulous resource. It answered literally every question that came up uh, on that regard. So it's fabulous. I love, I love hearing that. We we had a huge win today that my colleagues on this call don't know about. So I'm excited to, to share. Um, the Municipal Technical Advisory Service uh, Agency that is in the state of Tennessee, and it puts together model policies that all of the cities look to, um, best practices and model policies. They have for a long time had um, breed-specific language um, and sort of endorsed breed bans for cities, which all of us on this call know does not keep a community safe, unnecessarily separates uh, families from their pets, has nothing to do with ind individual pet behavior, um, isn't enforceable, is expensive, the list goes on and on. Well, 
Today, they have officially reversed that policy because of IMLA and our model policies. They have now updated that language and um, the state of Tennessee is no longer endorsing grade specific legislation. So that's awesome. Uh, ce- moment of celebration and, and yeah, kudos to our partnership with IMLA. So, and I think that, that like, that's an example. And I think breach specific legislation, I think some of the CAD issues are a perfect example of areas where sometimes government makes our work in collaborating with the community harder because we're now in a situation where we're, we're enforcing rules and laws that we don't believe in, uh, that we don't think are right. We know they don't lead to positive outcomes for pets. And yet we're kind of in conflict with each other. And so I, I really think that it's important that all of those groups are brought to the table um, to be able to have responsible policies. So the fourth and final pillar on this is really around the public. You know, we've, we've talked about the shelter, we've talked about field services, we've talked about government, but the public plays a role in this too. Sue, coming back to you, what's what's the role that the public can play? Well, the public is where it's at. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I like to think about how much work I can do as an individual in a day, in a week, And then if I have a team of people that are our staff, how much work we can do as our staff. And it's a finite amount. You know, we can work really hard. We can really bust our butts, but there's only so much work that each of us can do. And when we engage the public, we're adding more of those hands to the table for different elements of of our work that we can accomplish so much more. And I give presentations about adoption policies and how to have a more conversational and inclusive adoption process. And one of the things I always highlight when you have, you know, really burdensome, uh, disrespectful, judgmental, kind of intrusive adoption policies, when your adoptions, to Scott's point, I was also been in animal sheltering for over 20 years now. And I remember when we first started, it was all about how you could deny a person for adoption rather than actually encourage them to, to get a, uh, to have a pet in their lives. Um, when you have those policies, those people who are interacting with your rescue group, with your shelter, who are having perhaps a negative experience, How many of you have an email that you can't keep up with and people don't get responses? How many people have your pets on Pet Finder or Adopt-A-Pet and you don't update them regularly because they're not connected to your software, so they're not up to date and people ask a lot of questions and they just to find out, oh, that pet's not here anymore. All of those interactions, which are us versus them, which are negative, which are challenging, um, those people who are interacting with you they could be your next donor. They could be your next board member. If you're a municipal agency, they're the taxpayer who, when you want to initiate a bond initiative to build a new shelter, they're going to vote yes or no. You know, they're going to be perhaps your next mayor or city council person. Perhaps they're a very influential person in the community who owns that sign business who can actually create those signs for you. And so every single one of those interactions has the potential to bring somebody who may not have that high level value. It just may be a person who loves cats and is going to come in each month and donate some cat food to you. But every single person has value to bring when you approach it and you find the right thing um, to bring value in them. So they extend really the public is everybody and the public is us and the public is our rescue partners. And it extends the amount of people that we have at the table 
working to save lives. Uh, one of the things as we talk about this, like I always think of the Jerry Maguire thing of like the help me help you uh, when they're having that conversation is like, cause it, it's not just solely the responsibility of the public to help solve this problem It's up to us to help them help us solve the problem. And so, uh, I just think it's really important that we, we don't just make this a, like, we're not pushing, dumping this problem in the community that we're, we're involving them and giving them the tools that they need to be able to do this. Laura, coming back to you, like there are other groups in a community, like, you know, on an individual basis, we need to help individuals, but are there other groups within a community that we should be engaging with to help us with our work? Absolutely. When you think about, you know, we talked earlier about integrating human and animal services, human services and, and collaborating, you know, across programs, folks are better at that than in animal services. It's time to integrate and Um, There are coalitions that are working right now in your community to solve homelessness, to advocate for tenant rights, to um, bring more uh, social services and resources to the neighborhood. You know, all of those, any of those groups, any of those tables of conversation show up because, again, if we can work together to meet the human need, the animals are going to benefit. And so, you know, I'm really proud that, you know, even when there's no language relating to pets, we will absolutely marshal resources to help um, any any local program keep people housed because we know the animals are going to benefit. So I encourage everyone to um, look at the coalitions that exist, the human services coalitions that exist in our community and get involved. Yeah, I think those human services coalitions are really important because behind every pet, there's a human that, you know, if the pet's in need, the human's probably in need. And there's probably one of those either government agencies or kind of quasi government agency type groups that's working with them. And if we can, all of our resources go further, if we're partnering and working together with that. Yeah, I Um, like to say we need to take care of both ends of the leash. So we're focused on one end, but there's a person on the other end. Fantastic. And Laura, you all also have a resource uh, for people who want to get involved like in their community uh, that they can connect through to. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this because I know that there are people on this call today who probably feel like they're the only person in their town or community who's willing to step up, who cares about this. Maybe you feel alone in this fight or you don't know where to start or you want to link up with others to do this. And I guarantee you, you are not alone. I guarantee you there are other people in your community who want to partner with you. Um, And we know that there's only so many of us. So we have created an online resource that allows you to organize in your community, host meetups, start petitions. Um, We give monthly trainings, you know, we'll dispatch on the ground too, but um, we put the power in your hands and it's called our 2025 action team. So I know there's a link in the resources. If you don't see an action team in your community, start one. Um, You can be like a young woman in, I'm going to butcher the name, but Atuma, Iowa, I think is that, but a little town in Iowa, someone else might know better how to say it. And she started a petition just shortly after joining our action team. Within days, she had 1,600 signatures on her petition. She's had two rallies now on the steps of City Hall tons of media. And now the city council is putting her on the agenda to revise their breed specific um, ordinances. So that's the kind of thing that can happen when you join the action team. Um, We're here to support you. That's awesome. Uh, But one final question, and I'm going to give this to Sue, because I know like there are a lot of people on this call right now that are, that are feeling slammed. Their, their shelters are full. 
because of either their great resignation or COVID or just the inability to hire people fast enough, they're understaffed. And, and so they're just struggling to keep up. And they're probably listening to this and like, okay, that sounds really great. Like all this community stuff sounds really great. I, I can't keep my head above water uh, in my current environment. And like, I feel like these two things aren't mutually exclusive or aren't in conflict with each other. So what would you say to somebody who's listening on to this call right now and saying like, I, I just can't do this in my community? Yeah, I would probably start with what you actually can wrap your hands around right now, which may be just like that shelter I mentioned earlier, taking a look at how you do things now. And is there something that you could change? Even if it like really challenges your existing policies and belief systems, can you guys sit down as a leadership team of your organization and think of something that you could change um, now that could relieve burden? So for that organization, it was, okay, we are going to allow rescue groups to take animals off our adoption floor. If you think about that, those are less animals in the building that you need the staff to care for. It could be that you require volunteers to go through a very burdensome period in order to become qualified to work in the shelter. Well, take a look at that. Are there ways that you could actually bring those volunteers in quicker? Is there ways that you could um, bring people in for certain aspects of your work? Um, it's going to be different for every organization. It's going to be different for every agency. And some uh, cases, it's going to involve restrictions that your municipality has put into place. And that may be going to your municipality and actually working with your city attorneys. Can we um, look at changing the ways that the rules that are set up for us? And can we even look at suspending those on an emergency basis? So I think having those conversations, trusting the public, trusting your staff, trusting people. I remember at one shelter, we had this uh, this particular policy in place, um, and I was a brand new executive director there. And I remember having a conversation with the staff, and I'm like, why do we do that? And I don't even remember what the policy was. And they just told me, well, that's how we do it. That's our policy. And I was like, it's kind of a bad policy. We should change that. And like, you can change that in your shelter, in your rescue, whether you're municipal, whether you're private, you can change these things and you can adapt. And to the point that um, everybody, like everything has changed under COVID, you know, Scott mentioned the silver lining. This is your time. If you're really nervous about something, if you're like, there's no way I could do that. Um, I want to try it because it might help you consider it a pilot project for yourself. So right now you may decide to change something that you really think has to be that way in the next 90 days, you may learn a lot from that. You may learn, no, we have to go back and continue to do what we did, but you also may learn that there wasn't the downside that you thought there was of putting volunteers through an excessive orientation process before they can come in and give you a hand. Um, of allowing, making adopters go through a very lengthy process. I think about how many times I've done this in my career. When I first started in animal sheltering, um, for the two weeks before Christmas, we didn't adopt out any animals at the shelter I was in. Scott's nodding his head because we were convinced that animals would be returned. They were going to be adopted as gifts and come flooding back. And so we shortened it to one week and then we actually eliminated it. And everything we were afraid of didn't happen. 
And the same thing where we people used to put applications on for puppies, even if the puppy was ready to be adopted, we made them wait 24 hours because we were sure that they were making an impulse decision and they would return the puppies. Scott's nodding again. I feel like we grew up in the same area. We were, <laughs> um, and we eliminated that 24 hour waiting period and the puppy return avalanche that we were expecting never happened ever. You know, so if I may, we, we, we were in separate parts of the country and these policies were so widespread. It wasn't that we're from the same place. It's we're from the same world and at the same time. And those yeah. policies, I remember closing down before Halloween before, yes. because the, the Satanists were going to come in and adopt all our black and orange cats and sacrifice them to Satan. I mean, and, and, and we believed it. And, and, some, and some people might be listening now and saying, "Woo, those people are crazy. But I'd like you to think fast forward to 20 years from now right. and looking back on some of the things that you you believe now are important. Just because I'm old at this point, <laughs> I think you're going to have the same perspective when you're going to look back and be like, well, in my day, we did this. And like, if you're still in animal welfare, you're probably going to be doing something different, very different than you're doing now, for sure. And if I may, and that's why I'm I'm always talking to my team and the people that we work with to to challenge your beliefs every single day, you know, because we're finding more and more that what we've been taught all along to believe just isn't true. And, you know, same with community cats. Um, you know, we we were Sue and I came from a world where community cats did never made it out of a shelter. We didn't have TNR. And for me, one of the biggest tipping points with that were was fighting dogs. You know, I've seized hundreds of fighting dogs in my day. You know, I used to be a cruelty investigator for the state of Massachusetts and um, had hundreds of fighting dogs. And until the Michael Vick case and what organizations like Best Friends did with those dogs, we truly believed in our hearts that these dogs posed a public safety threat and should not be adopted out. And we were wrong. We were wrong. So with that, challenge your beliefs every day, every day. And I think that comes back to something that Sue started us off with is just, you know, given the pandemic and everything that's been going on and the crucial situation that we're in now, it gives us every permission we ever need as if we needed permission, but it gives us even more permission than usual to really challenge those beliefs and, and make those changes and really test what our boundaries are. There's nothing that can't be undone. If you change it and you don't like it 90 days from now, change it back. We've got a ton of questions. I want to jump in and I'm going to go the first one I'm going to give to you, Scott, because I've got this question in a couple of different areas. It was pre-submitted. It's over in the Q&A session here. And this is really around TNR, return to field, community cat management, aligning stakeholders, especially like in a place where a government and people in the community aren't accepting of them. Like, how do you align all those groups uh, around community cat programs? You know, it, it, it's difficult. It is. And, and if there were an easy answer, we wouldn't have this problem that, you know, we have today. But, you know, the first thing is, is to make sure that we're, we're all talk, coming from the same place um, and we're not talking to someone who's upset. You know, and I, the people that I deal with usually are dealing with members of the public who have had a conflict, ongoing conflict, it hasn't been resolved. They've removed cats, more calm, conflict continues. And by the time that we get involved with talking to them, they're wound up. I mean, they don't want, they just want answers. They just want this to stop and they're mad. We can't have a rational conversation with someone who's all wound up like that. 
Um, what we need to do is, is what I refer to as de-escalate situations. You can have a rational conversation and explain to them what does and doesn't work. And, and the same with government officials. You know, most government officials, um, they're more reliant, they're more concerned with the, the number of complaints they receive. Right. And this is what one of the things we found when we launched this program in Washington, D.C. years ago, um, we were getting more people calling city, you know, city officials complaining about, you know, they're not picking up cats anymore. Right. Than than anything else. And, and but we had so many people in the community that were so, so excited about the fact that we were doing this program. And once we had them start to call um, sit the, the elected officials and say, hey, we're really happy that the animal control is doing this program. The narrative really started to flip with those city council members, right? So, so that's, I, I guess that's a, you know, Laura probably would know better than I do, but that's, that's, a, that's a tip for those grassroots folks is get those community caregivers and the people who, who are, you know, get their problems solved to call the elected officials and say, thank you for letting this happen. Um, you know, so that that's one way, you know, there's always going to be the controversies, you know, right now we can, I'm sure that I haven't read the chat or the questions, but I'm sure there's probably one or two in there about, you know, the, the, the controversy over the wildlife issue and the, the damage that cats cause and the big argument over stats and stats and, you know, this and that. And, and, and I get it, but to me, the cats are up there. They're going to be there. If we remove them, more will come. We know that. Over history, we've seen that, right? So I, I don't place much stock in 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 the, the battle between the 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 sides over the numbers, right, or the statistics or the studies and in all that. What I look for is reality. And, and in our communities today, there are cats. And you know, this one house um, may have had twenty cats removed from this house, and there's another one, right? And the problem's not being addressed by removing. So. We know TNR works. We know it does. And, and, th- and those are the types of, of things that I look at when I'm aligning the stakeholders is having you know, open conversations with people who it's really affected and getting their support. That's great. Yeah, it's kind of aligning some of those stakeholders that are on board at first and then, you know, helping use that coalition of people to help gain more followers and friends and fans of what you're trying to do and help move that forward so it gains momentum on it, which is one of the things that uh, the action team has been shown to be able to do is uh, organize groups of people fairly quickly. So um, that's that's another component for that. Um, the next question, this is submitted pre-session, um, but for Sue, um, how do non-brick and mortar animal welfare groups participate in this? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that the evolution of rescue groups uh, has been slower than animal shelters in terms of progressive policies. Now, I'm not saying anything. I don't know who submitted that question. Um, So I'm definitely not uh, saying anything about the particular rescue that submitted that question. Um, But some of the feeling, and I worked um, both in animal control and a private limited admission shelter, selective admission shelter, I mean, at the selected admission shelter, we really could pick and choose who we took in. And we could, we felt as though we could be very selective about how we adopted out animals. And we were, you know, we thought there was absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be, you know, taking weeks to get an animal placed in a home. 
Well, I did that without actually having an understanding that was prior to my work at a large animal control agency. And I realized that every day and every hour at that time, there were animals in my community that were being killed, that were losing their lives in animal shelters, healthy, adoptable animals, animals with savable medical conditions. And so our lack of a sense of urgency, I did not see how it was actually impacting the organizations that should have been our community partners. So I think one of the most important things that non-brick and mortar rescue animal welfare groups can do, um, whether you're a spay-neuter clinic, whether you're a rescue group, whether you're a TNR group, is really uh, your, your municipal shelter may, you may look at them and say, oh my God, what a mess. But you got to recognize that there are probably people there who are really struggling to find solutions. And um, as opposed to being um, completely in opposition to them, what are ways that you can help? What are ways that you can support them? So things like um, doing return to field, some of the things that Scott talked about, um, helping them get things changed in terms of the law, like Laura talked about, how can you be a partner to them? Um, how can you work with them as opposed to attacking them? Now, I will say that there are times that shelters are going to lock you out and not work with you. So then how do you actually work within your total community to really bring people on board? If you want to see change at that shelter, there's a lot of ways to go about it. One of the ways is to step in and be a help and understand the challenges that they're going through, not fight them for every change that they're making that maybe you don't agree with, uh, maybe do a little bit of research into it maybe come in and offer to help by doing some of the work with them. So I think a lot of ways that you can be of help. Um, I don't know, Brent, if you have any other, if I answered the question well enough for you. I, th I think you did. Um, uh, you answered it well enough for me. I can't talk about it for the person who submitted the question, but hopefully you did. Uh, right. If they're not on, they can, can re-ask a follow-up on this. Um, so Scott, back to you because this comes up a lot. And so I know that there are probably other people who are in this situation. It's like, is there a way to get local police departments more invested in getting pets home? Um, that they have a dog that frequently gets out and some police know the dog, but are still wanting to take it to the shelter so that the owner pays fines and fees. Um, what, how, what can you do to get them, like these animal control agencies that are under the police department, get them more interested in this kind of community-based approach? You know, the first thing I always look for is, is, is there someone in the chain of command that is um, in charge of uh, neighborhood resources, community policing, um, and, and really would really talk to them, to talk to the chain of command in, in words that they understand and, and respect and appreciate, like community policing. Right. So and I alluded to that earlier. I've been I was involved in that years ago. And, you know, nowadays, when we when we talk about save rates and we talk about, you know, uh, uh, getting animals home to police departments, the, that's that doesn't necessarily align with their mission, you know, per se. Right. But when we start putting it into into terms that are more relevant to their work, like, you know, building partnerships, building support within the community. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of talk today is about re police reform. Um, and that's what a lot of that discussion is focusing around is being more community pro, you know, community based. 
right? Looking at community policing uh, tenants. And this fits right into that mold. And that's usually where I start. You know, yeah, there are going to be that, there's going to be that um, sheriff or police chief that just looks at animal issues as, um, as a pain. Um, you know, whoever, whoever is on their bad body list um, gets assigned to be overseeing animal control just to get them out of the hair of the chief. And, um, you know, there's always going, going to be that. And, and a lot of it comes down to just open communication, education. And and speaking speaking to them in words that they they that are relevant to them. Excellent. I'm going to try to squeeze in two more questions on this. And first question, I, and I think they're, they're these are both going to go to Sue. Are there communities that you feel like are doing kind of the best best in class best practices for community supported sheltering at this point? I think that there are communities that are really taking important steps in involving the community by tearing down barriers. If we think, uh, Scott mentioned Dallas. Uh, Dallas has done a lot of work. That was a city whose animal services were really in crisis. And they have partnered really closely. Not They've not tried to do the work themselves, but they worked as a coalition with other animal welfare groups, with the spay neuter clinic, to really do things like intake diversion, to be able to talk to the public, to return animals in the field, to do all of these things that are really, um, uh, really working in partnership with so many different layers of the community. And that was a city where people were really upset with animal control and they wanted them to just go out and punish and sweep up animals and the leadership there um, really said, this is, this is not how we're going to reach a sustainable solution. This is a, this is a solution that you were looking at that is going to punish animals who've done nothing and punish people who are trying to do the right thing, but maybe they don't have the resources and they have turned things around incredibly. So I think Dallas is the one that comes to mind that has done a lot of work. I'm not going to say any community is perfect, but I think there are so many out there that are really trying new things that are trying. Um, I say new, but some of these things have been around for a decade and uh, or longer, um, but they are really trying. And I think what's exciting for me is I have been in animal welfare long enough that I remember this time when it just seemed so impossible when you know there were a handful of no-kill shelters. And now knowing that more than half of our shelters in our country are no-kill, it's overwhelming. And I'm like, my voice is probably shaking because I just remember how, how much of a mountain it seemed like we had to climb. And uh, for anyone who feels like, oh my gosh, things are so terrible now, I think both Scott and I could assure you, and you, Brent, can assure you, there were there were times in the past where it didn't look so hopeless, and there is so much hope now when we, especially as we move forward and bring more people in to helping solve the problems. I think that's one of the challenges when you have something that's so inclusive of all of this. Like there are a lot of organizations who are doing pieces of it really, really well, and but still working on other pieces of it. And I think that's where we are right now is like as this movement changes and continues to evolve and, and we can get more community engagement in all of this, taking the best, the little bits of pieces of the best of from different places and starting to meld them all together so we can maximize every aspect of the community and not just certain individual aspects of it is just a fantastic way to go. 
And don't forget to register for the upcoming town hall. It's going to be on March 24th. The topic, communication and transparency between shelters and communities. The registration link is going to be in the show notes on your player and also on the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. The production team, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.